Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I'm so delighted that you're joining me again today. I am in Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Center on a beautiful summer day, and I'm staring at the most gorgeous Aya Kanai sitting across from me in an orange that matches my book cover perfectly. All I can say is this is what I would expect from someone who has been in fashion as long as she has, and we are going to hear everything about her as soon as we come back from a short word from our sponsors. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am so delighted to be speaking with Aya Kanai. Aya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is such an incredible space to be in. It is such a fun space in Rock Center. I feel like people are always walking by. I say, please stop by and wave if you happen to walk by. But let me tell everyone a little bit about you who doesn't know everything that they should, but hopefully after this podcast is going to go know everything and more. Aya is the head of editorial and creative at Google Shopping. She's an American fashion editor who's been at the helm of literally every fashion magazine you can ever imagine. Marie Claire, Health, Teen Vogue, Cosmopolitan. I mean, these are the magazines of my youth. She also is a judge on the Project Runway Junior, which I'm going to need to hear more about. So first and foremost, you're a New York City kid. Tell me about growing up in New York City. You know, it was only when I went off to college that I realized that growing up in New York City is not normal. (laughs) Like, I didn't get a driver's license until I was 22. To be honest, I'm well into my middle age. You don't want to see me parallel park ever. (laughs) Like, I had never been in a mall. I didn't know anything about like life outside of New York. Of course, I traveled a bit, but I had never lived anywhere that was suburban. So when I went off to college in Ohio, that was the first time I realized I was like, oh, people have cars. People have grown up in completely different ways. So growing up in New York was perfectly normal to me. And of course, it's perfectly normal for me to raise my own child here. But of course, now I'm well aware that all this access to culture, access to different types of people and lifestyles, access to so much great education is sometimes very specific to having the opportunity to have grown up here. Yeah. And honestly, that's one reason I love having my kids in New York City because of everything you just listed. So it warms my heart to know that someone who grew up in New York still feels that way. So your parents had, in my opinion, kind of New York jobs. Your dad was a graphic designer. Your mother was in fashion. Mm -hmm. So did you realize you had cool parents when you were growing up? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. No, my God. I was probably so underappreciative as I should have been. But no, my parents are both creative people. They moved to America in the late 60s from Japan. My mother is from Kobe. My father is from Tokyo. They actually met here in the States. They were introduced by a mutual friend who said, you know, I don't know someone who's also living in New York City. So they met here and then had two American kids, much to their surprise, (laughs) myself and my brother, and have been living here in the same home home since 1969. What an incredible story. Yeah. And they live in the place that I grew up in. So it's interesting. I have many privileges, but one of the biggest ones is that I am able to feel really grounded in 
this place that you can feel very unmoored being in New York City. Yes. There's so many ways to just get lost in the hugeness of it all. Whereas I have a great privilege where I live in my hometown. Like yeah. this is where I grew up and, you know, I can spend time with my family, which I'm so lucky to be able to do. And also, you know, go to my job at Google. So there is a great benefit that I am well aware of now that is having my family so close by. And your parents are Japanese. Do you have ties to Japan? You know, my mom is British. We spend a lot of time in England. She has three sisters who live there. And a lot of times when I'm in England, there's a part of me that feels as at home in England as I do in America in many ways because of my mom, because it is so much of her culture. The words that she uses, even her accent remains after 50 years, which I still don't know how that's possible. But I wonder if it's the same for you. My Japanese is not perfect. Mm -hmm. In fact, I probably speak the Japanese of like a toddler or a <laughs> five-year-old um, or, you know, a person the same age as my own daughter. So I would say, yes, I do love going to Japan. I love being there. I wouldn't say I feel feel at home there because I don't feel like I would be qualified to like have a job yeah. or, you know, <laughs> it's the kind of, exactly. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where like, if we're at a dinner in Japan, I can understand what everyone's talking about, but I don't have enough complex vocabulary to participate. So it's actually in a funny way, the most frustrating type of communication where I'm like, oh, I, I kind of get what this, what we're talking about, but I don't have the words to explain, to explain my point of view. So yeah. there are aspects of being in Japan. It's such a beautiful culture yeah. that I will always love being able to go there with regularity. And I can't wait to take my own daughter there too. It's interesting. I wonder if your parents, have you ever had a conversation with your parents about that opposite part of their life coming here from Japan? Do they ever feel the same way about finding the words in English or were they both fluent when they moved here? No, they learned English partially here and partially having been in Japan. But that's so funny. I mean, I think that they think it's all one thing. <laughs> it's like an amalgam of the yes. two things. That's like my mother. People are always like, you're South African. She's like, no, this is my hybrid Southern British <laughs> self, I guess is the word I was looking for. Yeah. So Growing up in New York, who were you as a kid? You had parents who were sort of working in New York City jobs, graphic design, fashion. Yeah, what were you um, like? You as know, a child? before we started recording here, I was talking to Lydia about like my interest in the world of charity auctioneering. And I think it really stems from, and let me know if any of your auctioneers agree with this, it stems from musical theater. Of course. Okay. My daughter is heavily so, into musical so theater. I so I was yes. deeply into theater. I wanted to dance. I wanted to perform. You would give me a fan and a flowing dress and a staircase <laughs> to walk down. Like I wanted to do all of that. And, you know, like I think I was like in a performance of Fiddler on the Roof. And just so you all know, I'm Japanese. I'm not Jewish in any way. <laughs> like I would be in any play you could get me on stage for. I would take any role, man, woman, child, anything. So I have always loved performing. I think that doing some kind of theater trains you so well in your future life for a presentation at work, mm -hmm. the ability to get up and do any type of public speaking yeah. that I just don't have a fear of that. And I really credit it to that space. Of course, I'm never going to be on Broadway. I am never going to act ever again in my life. That's not my Until you world. become a charity auctioneer. Until Aya. I become a charity auctioneer. <laughs> so that's not my world. But I do think that 
exercising that muscle as a young person of knowing that you can get on stage and you're not going to die. Like you're not going to fall into a million pieces and crumble into sand is extremely powerful for a young person. That's what I loved to do as a kid. I was not good at school. I was not academically inclined. My older brother was extremely academically inclined. I didn't have that, but I was definitely a showman. I love it. I love a showman. It's interesting. The other thing about growing up in New York and I'm raising obviously three children in New York is my oldest daughter loves musical theater. And it's an amazing part about raising a kid in New York City because the minute you tell them that your child loves theater, they're like, is she on Broadway? Uh, that's zero to 100. <laughs> you know, there is there is a middle ground in New York where you can just enjoy theater. But again, I think that goes back to the access of raising kids here. So the musical theater gene stays with you in a way. You go to Oberlin in Ohio. So tell me about that transition. You're in New York City and then you're in Ohio. Yeah. So when I went to college, I knew somehow deep inside that I had spent too long in New York City (laughs) and I needed to go somewhere where I could really focus on being a student. So I chose to go to Oberlin, which was a wonderful, amazing, perfect school for me. I loved it. You know, Flash forward several decades, my husband and I both had gone to Oberlin. So there are many like great blessings in my life that came out of that that were beyond school. But it was a wonderful experience for me. And I studied art and art history and became a puppeteer. Yeah, so I need to just pin this because (laughs) this was what I really wanted to get to as I was leading the questions about theater. How does one become a puppeteer? This was a conversation my husband and I had for a solid 15 minutes last night. We were talking about it. I was looking through your bio. I was like, this is a question to ask. You love theater. Where does the puppeteer part come in? Well, I've always been interested in art. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I... I didn't know in what way that would manifest. And when I was studying religion and art history, I was learning about how every culture in this world has a puppetry tradition of some kind. So Uh it's like bunraku in Japan, marionettes in France, Indonesian shadow puppets, and on and on. There's, you know, in the Czech Republic, it's a really interesting, rich history. And I think that people have a desire to animate inanimate objects and create worlds. Mm. And artists do that beautifully in their own way. And so, again, I was always been interested in performance. I was interested in art. So this idea that you could put life into things Mm -hmm. and create a world. If you've ever gone to like a puppetry show with your children, you Mm -hmm. might know that like, it's like, they're there. They're there. They're there in the story. Yeah. And that that is such a beautiful way to use your imagination. So that was something that I got really interested in, in the sort of more like avant-garde, like art world puppetry scene, which I, that is actually a thing. And (laughs) I am um, learning so much in this interview. I have no idea. I will say probably if I look back and I'm, to be totally honest, I'm sure part of me like loved being like cool and niche and like alternative. But it was a genuine interest that carried me through for several years. And look, Flash forward, I'm not a puppeteer now, but I do think that in my work, as it eventually became in fashion, when you're building a fashion story, Mm -hmm. when you're building a set for a video, you're taking people, you're taking clothes, you're taking hair and makeup, and you're putting all those elements together and you're coming up with a creative concept to build a world that was not there to begin with, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a fashion story or a video concept, whatever it may be. And that to me, again, all stems from, you know, this interest in puppetry and how do we create worlds and dioramas and tell stories with that. 
What were you like in college? Were you a confident person? I feel like we haven't really touched on this, a confident. And this is something that stems from your childhood. Were you always confident or? I think I was always a confident person. You know, like you, I'm quite tall. I feel like I was always able to carry myself with presence. And it was interestingly only like, frankly, like later in life that I had lapses in my confidence. Mm-hmm. I feel like one of the challenges of of listening to podcasts, which I do consume a lot of this type of content, and it's so rich and so educational, is that there is a real possibility to see someone's life as if it was all meant to be that way. Yes. And it all gets like very like tied up with a bow. Yeah. And so, yes, I think that my confidence, although I have always had it, was something that I realized later on in life was actually like a little bit more paper thin than I thought it was. Interesting. So you're in the middle of your puppetry moment, if you will. You sort of have the world of puppetry at your feet. You're 23 years old and all of a sudden you decide to give it up. Yeah, I decided to give it up because I was traveling the world, actually, doing a puppetry show with the Seattle Repertory Theater. It was a repertory theater, of course, in Seattle, and it was a show that ended up going on tour because it was quite successful. So again, this is like one of those things where it's like twice on Sunday, you you get Monday off and you perform every single night. It is a bit like Broadway. Yeah. Yeah, and what I realized is you can have passions in your life, you can have interests, but they don't necessarily have to be your job. Yes. And so simultaneously, I had always been also interested in fashion. So in the early 2000s, a magazine called Teen Vogue launched and it was, of course, became like a real runaway success. I was the bottom of the totem pole, the absolute like assistant of all people. I would, you know, get people's dry cleaning. I would walk people's dogs. I would fill out your camp forms for your kids. <laughs> I would do all uh, of this that. Sounds so stuff. familiar. I yes, did all I of those this. things. Yes. It was awesome. <laughs> yes. I really loved it. And I got to see everything that goes into making a magazine because it was a very small staff. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, it was owned by Condé Nast and part of the Vogue family of magazines, but it was a brand new title. So So there weren't that many people that worked there, which meant that I could see everything. I was involved in every meeting. Of course, I wasn't decision-making. I was just watching the things happen and assisting and unpacking the boxes and seeing all the products. And so that was how I got my start in the fashion industry and the magazine world and have worked in magazines for about 22 years after that. As you mentioned, at so many titles, there's too many to count. And it was quite frankly, like the perfect career for me. I think that when there's a a period in your early 20s, I think that many young people are searching Mm -hmm. and trying this job or trying something else and feeling like something might not be the right fit. When I landed in the magazine industry, like I knew I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I saw amazing stylists and fashion directors. I was like, that is what I want to be. I was able to watch them work. I was able to grab onto their coattails, assist on their photo shoots, you know, learn, do everything. Yes. Do everything that I needed to do to get Um, my own footing. I had incredible opportunities where I was able to like jump up the ladder quickly. And it was a way in which when we're speaking about confidence here, that I think that I was able to believe that when your career on LinkedIn looks like it's just a trajectory that's just like up and to the right, Mm -hmm. like every Mm -hmm. role that you have is from assistant to manager, to senior manager, to director, to senior director. And And then they're creating titles for you as you go along. Yes. And so I think that 
I was able to, by the time I became the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire, I was able to sort of have the erroneous belief Mm -hmm. that, A, I created all of this off of my own blood, sweat, and tears. No, there was a lot of luck. There was a lot of right place, right time. And that my ideas, my point of view is just so important and revolutionary Mm -hmm. that I can take that, I can go to another industry and be just as good, be just as successful, which I think as we all learned during so many people changing what they did during the pandemic, whether changing industries, changing where you live, that making a big adjustment in your life can be extremely destabilizing. Yes. And And humbling, right? Yes. So all those years, all 22 years of working in the publishing industry, although I... I'm so grateful for all of it. I'm so grateful for what I accomplished. Yes, I was on television shows. I did all of those things. But when faced with a brand new space Mm -hmm. that I didn't understand, I couldn't like hang on to the confidence that I thought was so rock solid. So you were the editor-in-chief at Marie Claire, and then... Where did you go after that? You're at the pinnacle of your career. What, again, I love tracing into years so we can sort of see the Um, progression. So remember there was that moment during the pandemic where everyone was just like having crazy thoughts? Yes. (laughs) And so at that time- I feel like that was a daily thing, but yes, yes, I can't pinpoint the exact moment. At the time, my husband who works in the aerospace industry, we were talking about moving to the Bay Area because I don't know, I had never been there. I don't want to live in the Bay Area, but but somehow we had that idea. That Everyone was our is crazy idea. They listen along. Right. Like, yeah, no, we were going to yeah, move sure. to a cabin in the woods. Yeah, yes. totally. And so we had that thought. So I was like, okay, well, if this is the case, I need to get a job that is headquartered in that area. So I found this opportunity at Pinterest. And why Pinterest? Well, I had always loved the platform. Mm -hmm. It was an editorial opportunity. So Mm -hmm. again, like transferring my editorial background, but using it in the consumer tech and platform space. So I was like, this is great. And, you know, (laughs) they were going to help me relocate once like the lockdowns were over. So I, I kind of really thought that I had like figured out life. And that's how I ended up leaving my 22 career working in the magazine industry to go work in consumer tech. Talk me through day one. (laughs) Um, Well, so again, I'm a creative at heart. And um, when you are onboarding into any new space, meeting new people as a creative, and to be honest, I think, frankly, any type of job, you need relationships. You need trust. Mm. You need to believe in each other in order to do your best work, in order to take risks creatively, Mm -hmm. to know where is like the edge that I can push on and when do I kind of like reel it in. Mm So this was during the part of the lockdown where nobody was even leaving their apartment. Mm. So I met hundreds of new colleagues over video call and we're all just like little rectangles in a box. I was so confused about like what, I I actually really didn't even know what people, the words that people were saying. It was one of those experiences where I was like, I know you speak English and I know I speak English, (laughs) but whatever is needed for those, the words to be comprehended is like not happening here. This is like tech talk. And, um, And as things progressed, of course, like I started to understand all the acronyms and, you know, the way that people, the way that people behave in that culture. And I will say, you know, 
to protect the privacy of the people involved. I, I won't get into like the details of like exactly what happened, but I had an experience at work that was really, really bad. Mm. And again, like I hadn't met any of these people, but I had a, a very bad experience at work that when it came to unpacking, like when I look back on it now here as I sit here with you in my orange dress, with your orange book and like talking about confidence and thinking about how is it that two years later that you have a traumatic experience and you still don't feel like you've gotten back to the place yeah. where you're confidence is where it was before that thing. And why is it that we are all so able to have that get like shredded in just a moment where a series of bad experiences, which P.S., just for your context, it has been like verified that like I was not the party doing wrong things in the moment. Yeah. Like it was... You were the victim yes, of it, to um, use the word. That I still don't feel like... When I read your book, and there's this great part of your book that I took notes on that was about this method that you have, which is called SLAM, S-L-A-M. Yeah, yeah. And how the M of that is like, make your point and stand your ground. Yeah. Which I understand what you're talking about, mm -hmm. but that when you make your point and stand your ground, but bad things still happen, Yeah, it's really easy for your confidence to get like, shaken to the core in a way that is shockingly very hard to build back up. Yeah. And yeah. even though I sit here with you now, like having moved on to like a wonderful work environment, great colleagues, like incredible, you know, work that I get to do at Google every single day that I'm so lucky and proud to do. Mm. I still know in my heart of hearts that like, there's like something really broken. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, there was this interesting, you know, part of your book where, and I'll just read a little bit from it, where you said, why do women in particular feel like we constantly need to ask if we can do anything? Why do we always feel like we need to seek validation of others to make decisions in our lives? Why do we stop short of going after things because we worry about the opinions of others? And I guess what was interesting to me about that is like, I have done and accomplished a lot in my career yeah. to the level of which if you were to like look at my LinkedIn, you'd be like, oh my God, she's she's done all this stuff. Yeah. But still now I can read that and feel like, yeah, I'm, I am definitely a person who feels like I have to ask for permission to like think and feel what I feel. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, Aya, thank you for sharing that because I know that kind of vulnerability is exactly what there are so many people who feel and don't know what to do with those emotions. I truly believe, and you know, I share in the last chapter of my book, this car accident mm. where, and you may remember I say, like, I remember a really good friend of mine sitting down afterwards and saying, like, why did this happen to you? Like, what have you done wrong in your life? And I'm sure that you feel the same way if you look at the trajectory of your career, as you said, you can check off every box. You've done everything that you should do with integrity. You know, I know a lot of people who know you, people speak so highly of you. And then something like that happens. And I think that's the reality of life, that bad things happen to good people. And there's no rhyme or reason. And I truly believe that confidence comes when we slowly build ourselves back up, mm -hmm. you know, both physically and mentally. I mean, I can say that having done the work since the accident, I mean, I... I 
equates so many things to the recovery of having a fractured spine and every day having to think to myself, there's one thing I can do today that I could not do yesterday. I can roll to the right and it hurts less. Like that is the only thing I can do today. I can take a shower without a garbage bag over my body. And I think mentally, when you go through something so traumatic, you have to allow yourself to go to that dark place because it is dark and life is not perfect and it is messy and imperfect. And I say that as well in the book. And over time, the only thing that allows you to build that confidence back up is to do what you're doing, which is to go back out there, to go to that new job, to go to that new place, to try something that you don't think you can do anymore because your confidence has been stripped away. And I truly believe that's how you build confidence back. So you're two years down, but I bet if you look back day zero to day one, you have nothing to do but celebrate for the past two years of everything that you've gone through. You've picked yourself back up. You've put yourself back on that track. You're sitting here in an orange dress. <laughs> you have an amazing life story that's only, and you know, I'm going to live until I'm 120. I don't know about you, but like you're a third of the way through at this point. So it's only good coming from here. Yeah, there's, um, uh, uh, you know, in in the book, as you were talking about your car accident, there's this amazing moment and it was Halloween yeah. and your kids were dressed up for Halloween. Yeah. And when your daughter, oh my God, when your daughter said that like her superpowers protected your family. Yeah. Um, it really, in some ways, I felt like that comment really encapsulates the book. Yeah. Because she's right, right? Like yeah. there was something that was protecting your family. Yeah. And how wonderful that your daughter knows that like she was partially responsible for that. Who's to say she's not Right, right. Like, who's to say she's wrong? Like, and that to me is like, I don't know how old she is, but like, that's the confidence that my five-year-old has, that she knows that like, she has impact. Yes. And in a situation that was like, you know, horribly outside of your control, that where your, you know, your family was really in danger, like your little girl is like claiming her role in making it okay. Yeah. And when I think about being a mom myself, like how can our girls hang on to that feeling? Yeah. Their whole lives. Right. Which is hard because again, as I said, like I've always been a really confident person. I've always been someone who was successful. I put a lot of work into what I did, but I have always kind of like risen up in whatever I was doing through grit and luck and whatever, all the various aspects that make life what it is. But again, to like have a life experience where you realize how paper thin your confidence actually really is and how can our girls like really build a a stronger foundation for themselves than like the one I see that I didn't really have. But first of all, you are successful. You just use the word was successful. You are a successful person. I, nothing takes that away from you. Nobody can take that away from you. What you have done, the accomplishments that you've had over the course of your life have proven your success. And I think the way we show our daughters is we do what you're doing. And as I said in the book, it's what I did. You know, I got out of bed every morning, as my husband would say, like before anyone else with my fractured back and my spine, you got out of bed after all of those things and you probably made her breakfast and you took her to school and you showed her that difficult things happen to good people and you still keep going. And that's how we imbue with with confidence. We don't give up. 
We don't just let it all go and think, I can't handle anymore, I'm done. We stand up and we keep going because that's who we are. We're strong and we're confident. Even if your confidence has been dinged heavily, it's still there. And I truly believe, you know, you have a platform, you use that platform for good in all the magazines that you worked for. I write books because I do want my children, not just my daughters, I want my son too, to see these lessons, to understand that life is to be lived in all the good and bad. It's not perfect, it's never gonna be perfect. Things are fair, things are unfair. That's part of life and we can't get around it. But what we can do is live our lives. And that to me is what confidence is all about living the life, creating the life you want. And that to me is also how we teach our children to be confident no matter what. Mm -hmm. I just can't even tell you how much this conversation has meant to me and how much it's going to make me think for days after we get out of this booth. Let's talk a little bit about your daughter. She came in 2018, is that correct? <gasps> yes, she came in 2018. I had done a lot of IVF and tons of fertility treatments. I spent my 20s and my 30s exclusively focusing on my career. Um, and I, you know, came to the point where it was like almost too late to have a family, which made it very challenging to have the one that I was so lucky and am so lucky to have now. I think that becoming a parent later in life, A, is so tiring. I'm so exhausted. <laughs> but, so um, but Joe, Joe <laughs> my producer, has a little, little boy who's not even a year old. And he's, he always comes in. We both just laugh. We're oh, like, my goodness. I'm, I'm tired. Like, Me so too. tired. <laughs> but so I, much energy. So many questions. <laughs> so many questions. Um, but I, I do have just like infinite gratitude for, you know, everything that it took to get here. Yeah. And I think that it was perfectly timed for what it was. And it's such an interesting experience to be a parent and to walk through the world of a five-year-old and experience New York City with her all over again, because I was a five-year-old here too. I love it. What a magical thing it must be to take her. I can't even imagine taking her to places like Rock Center during the Christmas tree. And just that wonderment, watching it through your child's eyes is really something to behold. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, as someone who really like, I didn't even know if I would be a parent. I didn't even realize that I wanted to have kids. So again, part of the other reason why I like put it off for too long. So I think that now like the gratitude that I feel is like just so much more multiplied. I think that young people, I think there's so much pressure. I mean, already yeah. you just yeah. kind of see it starting yeah. of, you know, feeling of this comparison culture yeah. or, you know, the ways in like the relationships between like, you know, the girls and the boys and, and how are they all getting along? It's it's just, it really pulls at you to see those things starting and to sort of remember like, okay, this is her experience. It's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> don't uh, don't bring the, the eighth grade <laughs> drama to your five-year-old. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They'll bring it on their own. My daughter's in fourth grade and we're already seeing it and we've seen it this year. It's starting and the sort of school guidance counselor held a meeting and called all the parents in and said, listen, when you get to fifth grade, I just want to let you know that your children are going to really overreact. And what I need you to do is just kind of not believe everything that they're saying. Like they will have one point of view. That is the only point of view that they will have at that moment. So just understand that it is not the only point of view and there will always be another one too. So let's stay in sync, which I think is a, a good way to live life. Well, Aya, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for sharing your vulnerability. I can't even tell you, I'm sure there's so many people who are going to sit here and cry as they listen to your words. And I will tell you, Aya was sitting here 
here just crying. And it's just, I love crying, so I understand the importance of it in life. I think it is such an incredible way to relieve yourself of your thoughts and also just feel better. It's refreshing to get all of that out. It's almost like a, a new day after you finish a good cry. So thank you for being here. Thank you for telling your story. Where can we find you? What are we looking for you to do next? Oh my goodness. I guess you can find me on social media. My name is Aya Kanai, A-Y-A-K-A-N-A-I, LinkedIn, Instagram, etc. And that's about it. That's about it. But we're expecting many things, I'm sure. I'm expecting a book from you. I know, now I have a lot of ideas for you as we get off this <laughs> podcast. But first of all, I just want to leave one question with our viewers. Have you ever been vulnerable with someone else? Have you ever really told them your story in a way that makes you cry? Because it's something that I feel is a gift. And I feel like you've given me that gift today. And I've had a couple of other people on this podcast who've started to cry as they tell me their story. It's such a magical thing to see that from someone else. So I would say to everyone out there, why don't you take the day and be vulnerable? Tell someone a story that you haven't told other people and watch how they respond and open up to you. It's a really incredible way to live your life with truth and honesty. So I'll leave that with you. To our listeners, thank you so much for being here again this week with Claim Your Confidence. I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, have a wonderful, confident week. And I'll see you back at Newsstand Studios next week.